People's History of Violence, I guess where we go entirely too deep into histories, assassinations, fairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. And we're still talking about Boston. Yeah, we're talking about the wordy, we're getting wordy with the wordy goons. Yeah. Because I, I kind of, you know, obviously you have criminal memoirs from all over America. You know, New York has certainly supplied its fair share. You have LA sort of more gangster memoirs from uh, the Crips and the Bloods and your uh, Latina gang, Latino gangsters. You have your drug dealer, your your drug smuggler memoirs from the Southwest, largely mob memoirs from all over. But Boston kind of does have a special place, both because, and you have to wonder how much it's just in the water being kind of literary and overly wordy, uh, overeducated almost. Yeah, it might be the combination of having like the coexistence of this artificial island of. Uh you know, feed them like gangsterism with so many fucking universities. <laughs> right. They, you would figure probably the more clever defenders of, and I'm not trying to attack the neighborhood, you know, but the more they feel attacked whenever you talk about them, but the, the more clever defenders of the old South Boston would say, well, it was a city of islands. Because Beacon Hill, also a fiefdom, also an island. Harvard, also a fiefdom, also an island. And Harvard was way more, and is way more powerful and has more bodies on it. Let's make that clear than South Boston does. Yes, Harvard uh, has way more people with way more bodies than, but, than Whitey Bulger. But also, but that said, yes. but we're talking about the goons. We're talking about the goons. And I also, if we wind up weaving this in with other parts of the earlier that we recorded, it's also worth noting that their Boston does seem to play a special role in like the imagination of whiteness in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. If you wanted a whiteness that was gritty, urban, working class, then Boston, and particularly the neighborhood of South Boston, was your imaginary home. Yeah, and tellingly, you pointed out that most of this came out before 9-11. Yes. So there's this kind of like, you know, I mispronounce it, I'm kind of, some type of fin de siècle, <laughs> American empire thought where there's a notion of there's no mission anymore and the Soviet Union's gone. And now the kind of violent, acquisitive spirit of the society is going to seep out of it. We're going to become soft and nihilistic yeah. and purposeless. Yeah, or and, just or, yeah, or just um womanish. It loses yeah, its yeah, manliness. Yeah. It loses it gets deracinated. You become a plastic patty if you're an Irish American. Yeah, I mean, this this comes, you know, in, in the thought right before World War One as well. And and some writers like Richard Seymour pointed out just how seemingly parallel the uh like highbrow thought of the US was leading up to. Mm -hmm. I mean, the years immediately leading up to 9-11. Uh, in in wanting to have some type of crusade to go on yeah. and people to kill, mm. um, that's a good point. Things to acquire, and I, but I feel like in terms of like casting about for a literary archetype that could fit that, you know, to some extent, you know, the 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 gangster memoirs were definitely part of it. It's kind of funny because it's this interest in Boston, like you pointed out, kind of started with Goodwill Hunting, which is very much much more representative of this kind of uh, archetype pointed out by Jefferson Coey in, in Staying Alive of you should embrace the uh, the the path of like educated flee from the neighborhood gentrification. Yeah, Ben Affleck it, says he'll beat the shit out of Matt Damon if he's still working construction 20 years. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's, it's funny that just in just a, a couple years from that, it's like 
no, maybe you should have just stayed. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, or not exactly, because like there is like all these memoirs seem to be kind of in the Matt Damon, I've left it all behind. And the real thing was that I got taken in by the community. Right. And there's kind of a, in how you describe, there's a love for the notion of community in South Boston. And paradoxically, very little criticism of like the truly unsavory, vile aspects of it. But also a hatred for how it held them back from becoming, you know, fully actualized right. 21st century entrepreneurial yeah, people. The, yeah, there's a lot of complications in this story. And some of them get in touch a little bit with it. But most of them, even the best of them, can't really and you know it's 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 understandable because it is a complicated story but really flushing it out and getting at what happened it's like it's it's just kind of too much man but anyway so talking some about the ethnic angle the romanticism angle and this attempt to find this resistance against deracination Right. The idea that what white Americans need is some kind of identity rooted in place and implicitly usually in the old world, though yeah. neighborhoods like Southie also could have it, though seemingly all the neighborhoods that you're that could provide this resist that could provide this real life, this this community seemingly always had some sort of relationship to the old world. Like you didn't have anywhere they thought of them, I guess, other than the American South, where they thought of themselves as, you know, community based without some sort of relationship to Europe. Yeah, even though it, it almost existed as kind of like a kind of like how like those patents of nobility that trace the, yeah, trace yeah, the yeah. pedigree. Right. Like that. Right. that's kind of the, the extent of like most people in South Boston's relationship with Ireland, although. Frankly, the, the interesting thing is, is that how many of them, particularly during the various economic crisis, like actually do have like various relatives and come, oh, yeah. come, come in. Um, and you have, you still have a fair number of uh, Irish, yeah. uh, particularly before the economic boom, the Celtic Tiger took yeah, place. Yeah. And then in the wake of the Celtic Tiger crash, there's a number, I don't know how much of them are, especially now that South Boston has been gentrified to fucking gone and is like the <laughs> the worst kind of gentrified, not that they're all so good, but that South Boston, other than a few blocks around uh, some of the museums, never went through like an artsy or gay period of gentrification. It went from uh, hellhole fiefdom run by gangsters to hellhole yuppie tech people work somewhat in tech though a lot of those people go to somerville or cambridge or jp if they're a little funkier they want more ethnic cuisine there was no like artist colony yeah there was like there was a couple of warehouses where you had artists but they never a couple of lofts but now it's just like a gillette employee like upper management at gillette that's who lives there they're in their north faces their fleeces. It's like the um, it's like Parker Posey and her husband in uh, the dog movie. Yeah, uh, maybe, maybe like the, the the truth is that the two poles of Boston in the nineteen nineties and this depiction is like kind of Disneyfied version of like the Wahlberg brothers, and then like Ally McBeal is that yeah, the other Ally McBeal crossing one. Yeah, <laughs> so hard. Ally McBeal just body slams. The Mark, which I'd pay to see, fucking Mark Wahlberg, like a talented actor, big dickhead. Calista, Calista Pollard, apologize now for that poor Vietnamese man. <laughs> no, 
fair. You forgave me. You forgave me. I gave him a Wahlburgers franchise. Anyway, um, so getting back, so Patrick Nee, author of A Criminal and an Irishman. He actually was born in Ireland in the 40s. So in the depth. So already a huge exception to these other guys. Already a big, yes. Big exception. Comes over when he's a kid. His parents, on the less abusive scale of, I think, I think the, the dad was kind of absent, but he winds up in South Boston. He gets, he's a little bit older than a lot of the other people we're talking about. And he says from the beginning, and there's a reason, this is one of the reasons why I like Nee's memoir and then the, the one we're going to talk about after. And then he's more honest. Yeah. And when I say honest, I don't expect criminals to like rat on themselves in their memoirs or even necessarily rat on their friends, but just be like a little bit honest about like, you kind of like doing it, didn't you? Like, and it's okay. It's okay to like things that aren't great because we're human and that's how it is. But Patrick Nee was like, and every time I got a rubber band bunch of cash yeah. and got to hang out with my friends at a bar, I was like, this is terrible. What a, <laughs> right. An awful thing. I mean, no. To the, no. But Patrick Nee, he said he always wanted to be a criminal. Yeah. He would watch Westerns and he always wanted to be the black hat. Like that was just what he wanted to do. And he's not like, yeah, this makes me a cool, great guy. He's like, it's just who I am. All right. You're reading this memoir. In any event, he was part of kind of like pilfering gangs of children uh, and teenagers. Which there were a lot. Which there was a lot that, of. That comes out in, uh, in like, late, in, not in Black Mass, but in the subsequent book. Yeah, yeah. It was just how many gangs of people were, ste like, stealing out of stores, stealing out right. of cars. We would call it car hopping now. Yeah. Um, back then, they called it fishing. Right. Uh, but eventually, like, many of these uh, ducks-assed haircut kids, he gets picked up by his Uncle Sam. And he's in the Marines. The Marines were quite popular in South Boston. Out of all the branches, and he goes to Vietnam. Talks a lot about Vietnam. He saw some shit over there. Yeah, what did he see over there in Vietnam? Like, what what, like what like period of the war was he in? He was actually there, I think, pre-Tet. Okay. I think he came back before Tet. So he wasn't there when the shit really hit the... F I mean, it was bad enough. Yeah. But, like, when shit really hit the fan with Tet. Right. And yeah. also, like, he, it sounds like he wasn't there and also wasn't muted to see, like, the kind of collapse in morale. No. Um, no. Because his, and this eventually, and it cuts across <laughs> his other political commitments, he would think, as we talk about, but he does talk throughout the book about how we totally could have won Vietnam. Oh. Uh, we, uh, we should have won. We were, we were all, we were good at Vietnam. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was, uh, you know, I learned my military, uh, I transferred my military skills to my criminal career. In any event, he came back. Uh, I think you, you you noted to me that he draws no connection whatsoever between the fact that he's like in like the forefront, tip of the spear, imperial warriors for the United States, propping up a prior colonial project. Right. And an ongoing colonial project, really, uh, with the South Vietnamese government and his political sympathies in Ireland. Like he just... Right. He just like has like... Yeah, because... He's, he's gotten like the, uh, the, the like whatever the the non-lobotomy brain operation yes. to separate the hemispheres where he's just like, I'm an imperialist over here. Yeah, well, the man. Well, you know, uh, I guess he would just say he didn't like communists or something, like government busybodies, uh, because, you know, he does include the the standard denunciations of busing. It's less of a thing for him because he was older. But, you know, the, the liberals trying to occupy Southie in much the same way that the British occupy Northern Ireland 
Which is funny if you draw that parallel to, to Vietnam. Well, I was gonna say if you draw that parallel to really like like 1972 Northern Ireland or like post-battle bog side Northern Ireland, then like they're being brought in, like the British military was right. being brought in to put down these fucking psycho Protestant races right. Right. who had been themselves built into a cloistered world of political favors and kind of artificial enclaves of mm-hmm. public housing. Yeah. So he being a thief, that's what he always wanted to be. He actually does have some pretty good stories about heists. Uh, did he do heists, like armored car stuff? Or oh, yeah. He stuff. definitely did armored cars. He did, like, yeah. uh, he did like you know, this was back when there were more businesses dealing largely in cash. Yeah. cash well, we're, we're a fan of heist narratives. We're, we're a pro-heist podcast, basically. Um, he was involved with the Mullen Killeen Wars, which are part of the Whitey background. They were two gangs in Boston, two Irish gangs, as you can probably tell by the name. Uh, the Mullins, who hung out in Mullen Square. The Killeens, ran by the Killeen brothers. They got to a fight. Its origins were murky. It wasn't even really over turf because they were doing very different crimes. The Mullins did like heists and pilfering. The Colleen's did gambling and like protection rackets. Yeah. So like one's rackets, one's like private expropriation. (laughs) But they somebody somebody got in a fist fight with somebody. Somebody was talking to somebody's girl, some kind of bullshit. Eventually somebody shoots somebody else and it becomes a like multiple casualty crime war. Yeah, I'm I'm actually like kind of surprised about this one because one thing that comes up in a lot of these uh, uh, crime memoirs and, well, actually it doesn't come up too much in the crime memoirs, but in a lot of interviews with people who are serious career professional criminals is that, you learn this pretty quick, the stick-up guys are an entirely different breed than the rackets guys. The rackets guys, when, when push comes to shove, are actually like a softer sort of criminal Thing your stick up guy who's literally willing to like hold a gun up, risk being shot themselves. Yeah, yeah, which is I think what gave the Mullins something of an edge. Yeah, because they were less, they had fewer people and less money than the Colleens, but they were more violent. Yes, and also they were all <clears throat> caged up like rats in this peninsula yeah. that we call South Boston. So they were killing each other left and right. Eventually, Nee helps broker a peace and possibly basically gets one relative new arrival from Alcatraz, Whitey Bulger, to possibly assassinate his boss. Yeah, having, having been newly uh, trained up, muscle-fied, uh, made a lot more criminal connections and been entirely brain-broken. Yeah, by, by LSD. Literally MK Ultra experiments. But, he, he doesn't come out and say that he probably got Whitey Bulger to shoot his boss, Donald Colleen, but he might have. But Need emphasizes that he, you know, ultimately was a guy who wanted peaceful pilfering between the gangs. Like, can't we just take a little bit off the truck and right. divide the mediocre spoils and hang yeah. out with our friends at the bar? In any event, he helped set up the Winter Hill Gang. They picked up the pieces from the Mullen Colleen War. And then eventually Whitey Bulger took over the Winter Hill Gang. Yeah, I feel like the Winter Hill Gang is the first like serious modern yeah. criminal enterprise to come out of Boston like post-1930s. Right, unless you count the Angelos, but yeah. yeah. 
Uh, but, but they were basically a colony of Providence. So the Winter Hill Gang was an attempt at consolidating a certain amount of organized crime control based out of the Winter Hill neighborhood in Somerville, also now gentrified all the fuck, but a kind of a, you know, more tech workers and slightly funkier, mm-hmm. um, nicer restaurants or what have you. Um, and it was from there, he event, I'm pretty sure that Whitey eventually turned on Howie Winter. Yes. Coincidence, coincidence in the name as you get this a lot in Boston, um, like all the McDonald's and McCarthy's and what have you running around. I'm, I'm actually a McDonald's for the record. Nice. <laughs> despite my, you know, despite my uh, Yiddish name, right. like TJ English. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But Patrick Nee was doing his, doing his heists. He was paying off Whitey as part of the system. He was, you know, a, a respected crime guy, I guess you could say. More of a thief than like a dealer or an entrepreneur. But anyway, around Bloody Sunday, me gets more invested in the Irish Troubles. Bloody Sunday, for listeners who are not familiar with the Troubles, of course, was when a, a contingent of extremely uh, aggressive and blood on their minds British paratroopers fired on a crowd of protesters, mm-hmm. or as they would put it, uh, rioters, and mm-hmm. with complete premeditation mm-hmm. and uh, inflicted it's really hard to understand just how horrific these injuries were. It wasn't just like a little like, like, yeah, because uh, they a lot of them used um, live ammunition, live ammunition and dum dum rounds. Yeah, yeah. So um, that was some of them. I think they the later investigations found they modified themselves, and of course the British government just denied this for yes. decades. To be absolutely clear, the British government sent the people that in a war you would drop out of an airplane in order to kill people behind enemy lines and so chaos, they sent them to police people who were notionally citizens of their own country. Yeah. Uh, so they, 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 with live ammunition. Yeah. Yeah. So it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad over there. But Patrick Nee, he kind of talks about it as like, yeah, he was outraged or whatever, but also, (laughs) you know, he kind of wanted a sense of connection, right? He wanted to feel Irish again. So he gets involved with, arming the ira that was the main relationship between the U. well it's one of the two strands of relationship between the irish struggle and the u.s the other being on the political end of things efforts by more legitimate irish american politicians your ted kennedy's and so on to do something and aid and then yeah northern aid and what have you but you also had this criminal basically involvement, and I, I don't say that in a, you know, I say that in a value-neutral sense, where the IRA could collect funds and weapons. The relatively lax gun laws in the U.S. were a major assistance here, and there had already been IRA fundraisers in South Boston for, for some time. By the time Nee had gone involved, you could find tins in all those Southie bars and well beyond Southie Irish bars where you could uh, put some change in for the uh, orphans of men being held in British jails. Mm -hmm. But Nee kind of helped accelerate and industrialize almost the pipeline of weapons. And this is something that I I really was surprised on is can we, like how much of this is corroborated and how much is just Nee say because he's not the first like Irish gangster to be like I was the one who helped out. Even though there were maybe like a pretty small number of like kind of conduit agents for the provost, the provisional IRA, that actually went and kind of arranged these purchases. Because the thing that a gangster provides you is one lack of paper trail. You know, 
arms that are inscribed with serial numbers, that sort of thing. And then the other aspect is straw purchasers. Yeah. You know, which is which is where what someone he, buys the gun and says, I'm buying the gun right. me. And they buy the gun like that. Yeah. So Nee did stuff like that. He did straw purchases. He did they stole guns. Mm -hmm. They had a variety, they basically assembled guns by kit in some cases. So he talks about he he was already a subscriber to shotgun news. And he says, you know, one of the funnier scenes in the book is he shows like one of his IRA friends, like a, an issue of shotgun news. And you have to figure like this guy, he's coming from fucking Belfast. He's the provost were socialists. They weren't necessarily the most doctrinaire Marxists in the world. Right. The but, INLA was much more doctrinaire. Than yeah. Were, but they were, they were, sex. you know, he was involved. He's a seventies fucking terrorist dude. And he's having like this American quasi-American Yahoo hand of shotgun news is like, bro, look at these shotguns. But really what he was looking at was I think a, what Peter meant to say is that he was one of those seventies uh, urban guerrilla and yes. justified war of liberation. Dude. Six of one, half dozen of another. But <laughs> um, what he was really showing was the ads in the back, which was where you could get the real deals. Like not just, uh, you could basically buy guns from people that way, you know, sort of a predecessor of the gun show type of deal. You yeah. could also buy parts. The other thing, you need parts. Like you need, you need parts, you need ammunition. Um, you could assemble guns. I mean, like I, I, I remember uh, just from my days of being a child in Texas that there were a lot of, you know, back of guns and ammo magazines where you could find like parts that were in, you know, dubious, very, like very, like thinly veiled terms, like this is how you can go full auto. Yeah. So he was what we would call today a bundler. Yeah. Uh, in many respects, to, to borrow from kind of a political term. And one piece of evidence that he's not completely bullshitting is the Valhalla. Which was a the Valhalla was a fishing trawler uh, that also well it was primarily a fishing trawler. I think it had also by that point been purchased by some drug runners to smuggle marijuana, and then it got bought by me and some of his partners, including Whitey Bulger, who seems to have had a reasonably sincere interest in what happened in Northern Ireland, which is somewhat hard to square with what is also considered his sociopathy, uh, that he had no loyalty to anybody or anything, but we could talk about that if we ever do a Whitey episode. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I'd like to do a Whitey series. Like this, when the sociopath is, is in him is like the fly-by-wire, like autopilot of the plane, and then he does seem to have these like bizarre, like also despite being like, vociferously racist in his later years oh, yeah. especially and in the 70s and 80s um he does seem to have this like driven sympathy with random progressive causes <laughs> and one thing i even found out is when he's at alcatraz and i was just telling you about this and there's a strike that's being led by none other than morty morton sobel mm. as part of it why he's organizing like hit teams to take out scabs wow. from the prison strike and one of his biggest like kind of like patrons the wrong word but like supporter mentor figures uh in the 50s and early 60s was uh the Cherokee kid right or the Choctaw kid uh no that was a that was in Alcatraz oh, right, uh, outside outside the prison walls was uh Father uh Dryden, yeah yeah who later became Dean of Boston College Law School and yeah. a huge like international human rights person and, and he's the one who pioneered like the I am Catholic 
and obviously I'm a priest, but I'm also pro-choice. Right, yeah. And turn the Kennedy brothers to that mm. perspective. It's his political sympathies are very complicated. Yeah. I'll just put it that way. I I I have something of a counter to that, but we'll leave it for the for the series. And anyway, so his silent partners, which include various other like like there's one guy who's just he doesn't even seem to be Irish. He seems to be like a suburban drug dealer. Uh, who just like, I think he might have just been one of those guys in the 70s who thought this was just a thing to do. No, we're, we're, oh, he's sorry. one of the silent partners on the yeah. Valhalla was this was this drug dealer uh, who hooked him up with like the, the crew to actually run the boat. Yeah. And but he was just like this kind of suburban drug dealer who like seemed to think that supporting a radical cause was just kind of cool. So he provided a lot of the money. So they loaded it up with like seven tons of guns and gun parts and explosives and all kinds of shit. This was going to be like the piece de resistance. They'd already smuggled a lot of guns into this Northern is, Ireland. Yeah, this is a big score. This is a big fucking score. And they actually did, after only a couple of the people on the boat, there was like a salty old captain who had done a lot of smuggling. And there was this kid who was a mechanic, neighborhood kid, and he'll come up later. And uh, the rest of the crew, quote unquote, were just like, were Patrick Nee and various other like, Southie criminals who like not only didn't know boats like hadn't worked real jobs so like the captain's like ordering them around trying to get them to like do boat stuff right and they get into storms because it's the north atlantic and it sucks and then eventually never uh, been on a boat or never crewed a boat no literally trying to take this from boston to ireland, ireland yeah not one of the better shipping lanes uh for ease of travel uh but they shipped the animal fools they uh they there's all kinds of complications you know they notice that they're being tracked by garda airplanes you know the irish police you know they have to load everything up into fucking oh they also get trapped by the canadians and they have to like fool the canadians a few times and when the garda airplanes around like don't you think like probably you're 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 fucked like, yeah they, they did you, think someone that. already the, captain, out, yeah. the salty old sea captain was like we gotta get out of here but patrick knee and his ira there was one ira guy on board were like no we gotta get the guns and so they put them on like a little like they they ferry them over in little boats but then they get busted there was an actually high-ranking ira guy who was a grant who was grass he was informer for the for the british he was a super grass uh he they always thrown by the fact that like that is that is the british phrase for turning states evidence is right. someone turn grass yeah and I, I i do i i agree with others that like i do like that it probably came from like snake in the grass yeah yeah or just like grass is extremely common and so are snitches they're everywhere but uh, they get caught. They eventually, I guess somebody makes a phone call to customs in the U.S. So they do get the Valhalla back to Gloucester, Massachusetts. And the, the feds are on their tail. Whitey takes it on himself to Shanghai, uh, the mechanic, uh, because they think that the mechanic is going to talk. Uh, and he did like drunkenly. Uh, he got caught like stalking an ex-girlfriend or driving drunk with an ex-girlfriend or something after he had been told to like go to South America and not talk to anyone he ever knows again. So what happened with the boat? So the boat gets back into Gloucester Harbor, but Whitey gets paranoid. He tells everybody to like leave basically and button up, particularly that kid who was, he was like 19 or 20 or something, who was the mechanic, maybe older than that. He was like just the kid from the neighborhood. Yeah, he was just a neighborhood kid who was a mechanic on the boat. 
and he talked he got drunk one night and like got in a fight or something or he his ex-girlfriend he was too pushy with and so she called the cops and he mentioned something about being on this boat and then whitey catches up and catches up with him and basically tortures him to death with steve flemmy like tears all of his teeth out of his mouth so that he can't be identified i believe that was post-mortem at least but yeah and that that seems to have been like a consistent that's the thing, thing they did. that whitey did is prevent identification yeah like having the teeth all pulled out yeah yeah which so I, he had steve flemmy do it to his girlfriend yeah yeah which you got to figure there's easier ways to do that. But anyway, um, so it all goes to shit. Uh, various people go to jail. Nee went to jail. He get, he does get out. Or actually, he goes on the lamb for a while. But, like, he lives fine on the lamb. Like, because he says that the cops don't really want to catch him. And actually, at one point, he goes to a fundraiser, a Democratic Party fundraiser, where eventual Virginia Senator Jim Webb is at. And, like, Jim Webb knows, according to Nee, Jim Webb knew that Nee was involved with the IRA. and But he was like, that's cool. Because they were both Marines in Vietnam. Uh-huh. And, like, Jim Webb is is the one guy who's basically, not one, but the main guy who's tried to do for the Scots-Irish what these guys do for the Irish-Irish. Yes. Like, he wrote a whole book about Scots-Irish, like, identity politics, basically. Yeah. That you Around this time that these books... It, it was out. definitely in the same vein of, like, it, <laughs> a very long digression of, like, don't call me white. <laughs> yeah, or, like... <laughs> I'm actually Scots. Like, special your, kind Your of historical claims uh, bounce off my, uh, yeah. my memoir. You don't have, like... Yeah. 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 And, but also, because Webb's whole, Webb's whole thing was, like, I like fighting and fighters. So like he kind of all were oh and we're a fighting people. We're a fighting people, but he also kind of seemed to have appreciated the ones who fought back, mm. right? Because you can't be a fighter, which is a little bit nobler than the average American thing, which is where you praise yourself for being a fighter and completely despise the people who fight back mm-hmm. and are like insulted by it. Whereas Jim yeah, Webb, they're, they're evil for fighting back. Yeah, they're evil. Whereas Jim Webb kind of seemed to be okay with. Patrick Neem selling guns to yeah. people who had this serious problem with in this ethnic group. But anyway, he eventually gets pinched. He does some time. He comes back. He goes right back into it. But then he gets busted again for an armored car robbery uh, that he had planned on doing to send more weapons to the IRA. Then he's in jail when Good Friday happens, I'm pretty sure. The Good Friday Accords that end the provisional IRA is part of this armed struggle in Northern Ireland. And he's still around. He was actually, uh, if you look him up in the news a few years ago, he was on some sort of low-rent reality TV show about bookies in Boston, which, I mean, they're illegal, but they still did it anyway, the TV show. And people were like, why are we letting this goon Patrick Nee on TV? Because you do, there, there is like this, and Howie Carr is kind of part of this element like the the people who are shocked shocked that there's crime in boston even I, though i feel like he's like the, the in in that sense he's actually like the latest descendant in like shocked brahmin right like uh, right which like at this late date like the the dream is dead dude and you're like as much of a fucking bottom feeder as any of these fucking people yeah like harry Carr wouldn't have a name if 
the Bulgers didn't exist. He would just be another fucking rent a mouth. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's talk about the last one. The last one you uh, you identified as uh, definitely like the best oh, yeah. written of the bunch. And well, it's, it's the most honest. Yeah. So it's this guy, Eddie McKenzie. It's called Street Soldier. It was published a few years later. It didn't seem to be made. This was a little bit after like the bloom had come off like the Southie Rose. Mm-hmm. Uh, the culture moved on a little. But he's he's honest. But for if you're going to be an honest criminal writer, then like that doesn't mean that you're you know po-faced and repentant. Though he is repentant about a lot of what he did. But he's also not about bragging. Because he's like, yeah, a lot of it was fun. Anyway, let's well, talk. Well, in other words, it's that the, the two components of honesty. Like, he's not just like a repentant person. He's just like, oh, this was miserable yeah. the whole time. He's like, it was fun. And that's that. That's a more honest. Uh, yeah, it was fun. It was fucked up. It was complicated, essentially. He could let in some complication without also being like pedantic about it. Anyway, he was also a little bit older, a little closer to Patrick Knee's age than to Shay or Weeks. He was state-raised. His mother, he depicts as being kind of around heels. His, his depiction, not mine. His father was never in the picture. He had various siblings. He only kept close in touch with one, who kind of an older brother who kind of tried to look out for him, but it was pretty hard because he was shifted from foster home to foster home. Very nasty foster home situations. Really deprived. He was then sent to a pretty nice group home in the Jamaica Plain neighborhood that he said he actually did get a lot of love and support and education. And he was also victimized. And I don't want to get in. He gets into the specifics. Yeah, so you can look at the book for the specifics. He was, he was, but he was sexually assaulted as a child. And he talks about it very explicitly and very just like gut-wrenchingly. Like he's just, he just lays it right out there. And he's like, that's basically when I lost. He doesn't, I don't know if he puts it as he lost his soul, but he lost, he was already kind of a messed up kid, but he got a lot more messed up as a result of that. And he had a lot of anger and and shame and rage. And he also doesn't stint from saying that it made him like obsessed with sex. And like he, as like, you know, he was nine when that happened to him. And that's around the time he started, like, messing with girls, consensually and not. So he doesn't stint from mentioning that. He doesn't stint from much. You know, he that's when he starts going from kind of boyhood shenanigans, lightly involved with crime, to, like, serious crime. Yeah. He gets, he's also a thief. Uh, He eventually becomes a dealer, sometimes with the cooperation of his brother. He also does a stint in the military. He doesn't see service overseas. He's kind of a fuck-up in the military, too. And also, he is sexually exploited, actually, by his recruiter. Um, that's, that's something you get. That's one of the things. You feel like the other guys, if that happened to them, wouldn't have admitted it. Right. And so I think because another con- another piece of context here is this was also during the church sexual abuse scandals. All this stuff was going on. It was before it all came out. That culture of silence also benefited the church yes. and these 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 monsters within the church as they you know assaulted a generation of kids yeah. so there's probably a lot more sexual abuse going on than any of that they they do allude to like kind of all of them talk about either they themselves or others like certainly hitting women borderline raping women sometimes just raping them but mckenzie is the only one who was like yeah i was sexually assaulted 
And he doesn't say hurt people hurt people, but that is the logic here. That is what he does. So he's kind of an out-of-control criminal character for much of this time. He was involved with the Winter Hill Gang and with the general criminal milieu around Whitey. He, he knew Whitey. He knew some of the other kind of characters. It's almost like the Southie extended universe yeah. because you, you see the same people, not just Whitey and Flemmy and Weeks. Um, he comes up in a lot of the other people's books too, but just these random people uh, like Michael Patrick's Michael Patrick McDonald's brother, Frank the Tank McDonald, uh, who, was a, who was a big boxer and seemed like someone who was trying to stay out of the serious criminal life but then I guess needed money at one point and did a armored car robbery and got killed by likely with the connivance of his partners who ran off with the money. Um, um, Michael Pat, uh, Frank the Tank McDonald. So it was, wasn't like in a police firefight or something. No. It, was a, it was a double cross. Yeah. Was uh, uh, the, the cop or, or the cops or the guards might have shot him. Okay. But he survived. For, he was a big, strong guy, like a champion boxer, heavyweight boxer. And he survived for a while, but then he was gone. Um, he, was, he was the tank of the party. Yeah, basically. Yeah, uh, to use a, a nerd culture, but uh, that they wouldn't have liked. But uh, Mackenzie, he was he was like uh, Eddie Mackenzie's like best friend. Oh. So that busted him up pretty bad. He wasn't. He was never. Uh, he did make a fair amount of money as a criminal. He eventually had kids, and like many of them, he wants something better for his kids. He sounds. He actually sounds like he likes his kids. Which kind of the rest of them seem to sort of resent their kids, like the, the rest of it sounds like they were like, and I had to, I had to be good for my kids. Yeah. Whereas he actually uh, does seem to like them. He was also so basically most of the most interesting stuff with Mackenzie isn't about like organized. It's about his disorganized crimes. <laughs> so he's so he's angry, like he's angry and fucked up and does weird, messed up shit. So he goes. He, and he's he's a, he's a messy man. He's he's a big mess. So he goes and he does, like, he gets into, like, pre-UFC, like, no rules fighting. Like, he started out with boxing, but then he found judo and kung fu. And he trains that pretty hard. And he says he also, he says he got lessons for free from an old Chinese kung fu teacher because he got them girls. Like, he would just, he would just bring Southie chicks up to the, like, Chinatown dojo after his lessons so he's yeah uh he also used to do with his brother and so, so he and he got into like these underground no rules fighting tournaments that people would bet on that were primarily only for gamblers to yeah. watch and also legitimate kung fu tournaments like he said that he and his brothers went to these kung fu tournaments after only a few sometimes only a few weeks or months of doing kung fu or karate or whatever it was and they would go to the tournaments, and because most of the other people at the tournaments were like normal, non-criminal type people who didn't get in a lot of fights on the outside, like they might have been doing karate for years, but they don't have that like killer instinct or willingness to like really hurt people, which Eddie McKenzie had. Right. So like it's it's kind of like the you hear a lot of times about like how UFC fighters that have been, you know, trained in stances and movements for so long go up against like, you know, much more of a street type underground right. boxer and just get the shit knocked right. out of the right. like, like that happens, you know, circumstances are what they are. So he he, you know, 
he was doing all that while doing all this crime, doing a lot of drugs, stealing cars all the time. He he also did, and it's so funny how he, he probably the showcase for like his honesty and like, but also being like a honestly about being a piece of shit. Like he was like, I used to roll gay guys. I used to do he used to do fruit rolls, that's how you called them. Yeah, that that comes up in actually a lot of these yeah, things. That was a big thing back then. It's basically they would more or less pretend to be like a catch or someone mm-hmm. interested in a guy who's cruising. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, when all of this is like kept in the closet mm-hmm. and, and Boston's a buttoned up town, a lot of stuff stayed in the closet a lot longer than other places. Um, and then when that person would think they're they're getting a sign or something like that then they would beat up the gay guy and <laughs> steal his money yeah well bolger did that oh yeah uh talk called it rolling homos yep um sorry for the offensive yeah or the fruit roll up yeah yeah I, now i can't look at fruit roll-ups and well. obviously because of the situation the guy who just got mugged and yeah. robbed like can't very well go right. to the police because they're going to be like well what were you doing out there right what were you doing with, what were you doing on the on the fence yeah, in Boston exactly. or walking along the Charles River so, so he used to like do- the homophobia provided an abundant market for yeah brutal muggings and, and he was always clear Mackenzie was always clear that unlike the rest of these guys especially Shay and Weeks who always tried to say when they did violence they did it for they were the good guys somehow, yeah. right? Someone disrespected them. But Mackenzie was just or like they were saving South Boston. They were secret free. But but Mackenzie was like, I beat the shit out of these guys after robbing them because I liked beating the shit out of people. And because uh I was bad. And then, and this is fucking amazing, and I don't know whether this story is true or not. But like, so he and his little, occasionally his brother, various other people would come along with him. And apparently it got to the point where, and he, he heard eventually he pieces together through other martial arts contacts. He didn't know where this came from at first, but apparently there was like a main, primarily gay martial arts studio in the South end of Boston, which used to be kind of the gay, it still is kind of the neighborhood, but now it's like a fancy neighborhood. Uh, Context-wise, one can understand given that people like fucking Kevin McKenzie right, yeah. are beating the shit out of them and robbing them. Okay, so so Gay Dojo, they start patrolling the 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 strolls by the Charles River. And McKenzie says that at one point, him and I, I think it was just him and one other guy, like got trapped by these guys. Like he was about to like roll a guy, and then like these like eight jacked gay dudes (laughs) come out and like they have like a kung fu fight and he's like i gotta say these guys they were good Um, and like like they beat the shit out of him and like you know he runs away and then runs back or like like one of them like gets him in mount and is like don't do this again and then he's like okay okay and they let him go and he comes back that same, like, like he run, like, literally, like, just after he come, he's like, I can't, I can't lose like this. And then he says he got, like, fucking roundhouse kicked in the face. And, like, they beat the shit out of him some more. And then, like, left him there. And he was like, I never did a fruit roll again. So, like, I don't know. Like, it's not like, it's not like some dumb story where, like, the homophobe, like learns his lesson because I don't know he sees a sympathetic gay character on TV. He, he has a, a a gay family member come out to him. It's like sometimes the uh, 
the militant self-organization really really works and you need a roundhouse kick yeah, you to have your... a moment of, of introspection personal growth <laughs> yeah and it's like it was there when i was lying down after the uh the gay van dan roundhouse kick. Yeah. And I, I was like, what am I doing with my life? And why do I keep doing pro bolos? Yeah, but there's no, there's there's things like that, but there's no, like, he does learn, and the learning process is, like, or, it, it, for lack of a better term, organic. But there's no, like, cheesy denouements. Like, everything, every, everything in Mackenzie's story, the arbitrary shit is what life dumps on you. And then he learns through like effort and pain and also to a certain extent love he does love his kids he doesn't he doesn't love his wife uh he doesn't love their mother but he he can work with them in order to raise their kids he has some very amusing uh interactions with other women he and as he would put it he's not like a nice guy he's not like a good guy but he is someone who has like learned he most of these people have ghostwriters i but i do think his voice like shines through mm -hmm. uh he had one as well and i don't know it does it it goes a lot of ways towards both like disrupting the southie mythology because like it wasn't among other things he didn't have the best he didn't have this notionally idyllic childhood Right. A lot of them say he, he doesn't have this like bullshit of just like the community was great, everything yeah. was great, and then I, I got I graduated up to criminals, and then I was betrayed. Right, but also doesn't do also doesn't do like oh it was just trash, it was just oh a bunch of you know it doesn't do like a liberal like tragedy narrative. Uh -huh. It does just like yeah this is what it was, take it or leave it. it. There was a lot of fucked up shit, but we are all products of this environment. I'm not going to eschew it. I'm not going to say I was above it, but like take it or leave it, you know? I I do think that there is there is a there is a true uh media opportunity. There needs to be a series of these you know 1980s kung fu trained dojo <laughs> gay guys. Dude, that would be so cool. Fighting for the right to cruise in Boston. <laughs> Yeah, yeah we, I I would watch every fucking episode of that. So so and, so, and we like it's we had a good martial arts. Scene. Really? This is the one. Like the only one I could think of is uh, the bat enter the badlands, uh, which wasn't great, but it, it it was pretty fun at times. I didn't watch all of it, and it was a fantasy show, mm -hmm. whereas this would be gritty and real, which was. I don't know where we are in terms of wanting things. You know, maybe this though. is the gritty Boston masculinity that we actually need. Yeah, the gay guys, the kung fu dojo. Yeah, bring that back because yeah. And anyway, I'm, I'm gushing. It's a good book. It's if you like crime memoirs, Eddie McKenzie's Street Soldier is well worth reading. For uh, once, though, a many, master who explains how he how he was made into a bastard. Yeah, without like trying to play the sad violin for you, but also without like juicing his own masculinity that much. I mean, a little obviously, but it's fine. So yeah, I don't know. That's what I've got. Well, honestly. You know, Ed McKenzie's journey and the concluding, in, well, I want to say concluding, I know it's not how the book put it, but the uh, the kind of non-dinamal, slow introspective mm. by way of uh, of a rightly deserved gay roundhouse kick. <laughs> I don't think that there is a better way to leave off. And so no. thanks again, listeners. Yeah, thanks for uh, bear. If you, if you like more of this literary, if you want to listen to me ramble more about books, you can have a look at 
my other podcast, Reading in the Time of Monsters. And we'll re- it out. <laughs> and regardless of what format you're listening to on, uh, please come to our Patreon page, subscribe, get bonus content every month, and also more documents, more yes. evidence, yes. and more things when we do these in-depth episodes. Thanks again, and Thanks see all. you next time. Bye-bye.